everyone to our fourth podcast on opening up chaplaincy with me, Joe Mutlow, a humanist, and Stig Graham, an Anglican minister. And as podcast novices, we're very pleased today to welcome our first guest. Over to you, Stig. Well, we're really delighted to have with us this morning Karen Murphy, who is a chaplain down in Western Supermare, that, uh, the hospice there. Is that correct, Karen? I'm, I'm doing right so far. Yeah, I've been there 17 years. <laughs> wow. So, uh, so yes, you've been uh, involved uh, as a hospice and palliative care chaplain, I think, for 20 odd years, a lot, certainly longer than I have. Yeah, I started um, as a volunteer at a local uh, our local hospice in Bedford. It was a Sue Ryder hospice and uh, just sort of one afternoon a week, um, not really sure what I was doing, but turning up and just being another presence around. And then uh, they asked if I'd like some part time hours, which I accepted. Just this growing sense of although uh, of fitting in that environment, although I'm a Methodist minister by background and uh, was then in circuit looking after three churches, sort of busy already. Uh, but this, it's a strange thing. It was just a real sense of, oh my word, I wasn't expecting to fit into this setting. Um, but I feel I do and went along to the AHPCC, the Association of Hospice and Palliative Care Chaplains uh, Conference um, and just felt in that environment that although at that point I was still a volunteer, the contribution I was making to uh, to the palliative care in a small way was valued and it sort of gave me the confidence to keep going really and then um, uh, I took up the full-time post in 2005 here in Western Supermare. It's a small independent hospice, a 10, a 10 bedded unit but a big community um, mm. sort of care base and I just uh, they were looking for a full-time role which they hadn't had before to kind of develop the, the community aspect of the service. So, um, yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose that is one of the big changes that we've seen because it was very much the same uh, for me. I, I'd been volunteering in effect of the Teesside Hospice. And then uh, when I actually moved, um, Mind Hospice were appointing their first ever uh, paid chaplain, which were in straight in as full time, and after I left Teesside, also appointed uh, a paid chaplain as well. So it is part of the way we we've, we've been changing. I, I'm just wondering what your other thoughts uh, are about the way chaplaincy has changed over the last twenty or so years. Absolutely. I mean, in ninety the late 1990s, when I took up this volunteer post, it was assumed that the local uh, Church of England vicar yeah. would be um, the sort of unpaid chaplain just available to the hospice irrespective of their interest in palliative care their experience their skill their case their workload whatever and um, and that's been the huge difference that mm. I've noticed particularly that we we moved away um, or early 2000s from um, Church of England bishops making chaplaincy appointments in hospitals, for example, yeah. and old, if you like, over the appointments to those posts. And if, well, you remember well, sort of the, 
the seeds being sown about developing standards and competencies yep. and codes of conduct. And suddenly, from sort of around 2004 onwards, these documents began to appear as part of our, uh, our role profile. Um, and I know some people sort of walked against it a bit. It felt, mm. for some people, it felt as if it was a bit too professional or a bit too sort of um, institutional or organisational. But in fact, I, I was always a very keen supporter of these developments because other healthcare professionals have these in place. Mm. And or, or we've always had this tension, haven't we, in chaplaincy um, around the sort of, you know, do we, are we a profession or are we just sort of people who linger with this intent business? Thank goodness we moved away from that to become now um, you know, an accredited healthcare professional body. So we can sit at the table with other healthcare professionals with absolute um, integrity um, to say, you know, uh, we, we have to work by the same credentials as you do. And it, and it matters. I think mm. it's kind of safeguarded our existence. Can I, can I come in there? Because I think that's really, I'm totally behind you in terms of sitting at the table on an equal basis. Um, but I have some reservations about um, the requirements because they do exclude some people. And if we want to have true diversity in our profession, which we do, and we benefit greatly from that, we need to look at transitional arrangements or we need to look at ways of of giving credit to people who've got, for example, a qualified imam has not gone through a theology degree or even an academic degree. So to, to give that an equal basis is really important, isn't it? But I, I'm totally with you on this whole skills focus as well, moving into the idea that this is a skills-based job. It's not about a theology degree. No, exactly. It's about the skills that you have as a human being to communicate and show empathy towards another human being. And so I, I, on the one hand, I don't want us to tangle too much in the qualification and the academic route towards this, but there needs to be something that quality assures the skills that are involved. Oh, absolutely right, Joan. And the UK Board of Healthcare Chaplaincy that has been pushing for this accreditation and this idea of a register and um, initially set quite, um, narrow limits um, for you know who could apply to be on the voluntary register they've extended those considerably now because exactly for the points you're you're raising that perfectly skilled experienced people were then excluded um, if a job requir requirement was to be a registered member of UKBHC so that's changed considerably and they've worked really hard on widening the, the parameters so that it is far more inclusive and um, not exclusive to a certain group of people. Mm. Uh, I think they've, they've got that message loud and clear, <laughs> which is a, a really positive thing. Um, mm. And the, uh, I think the, the training and uh, the, the courses that are available for people, again, are pitched at various levels now. So not just at post-grad certificate level, but just a range of training opportunities around for people to, to gather the skills and the knowledge. But I think what we've 
also, I mean, I was president of the association for six years and, you know, in the national meetings when we were talk, talking about recruitment posts, there was a real dearth of, of what you would call quality applicants. Um, so there's this, there's this difficulty of, I think, ensuring that the, the discipline of spiritual care, chaplaincy continues but how it continues and what personnel are employed to take it further. It's, uh, it, it's going to be an interesting few years ahead, I think, of, of how yeah. that works. I think so. And I think, you know, you and I sort of had a, a similar route in a way with finding that we fit somehow. You start volunteering, you think, oh, I fit here. And then that, it takes you to another level. And then you say, oh, I fit here as well. And it's, it's very... Um, assuring that you're on the right track uh, when you come into this and find that your skills match and your, your attitude to life and your view of other people. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that conversation, but I, I, what you said echoed with what I felt. I think what I was saying is that, you know, the volunteer route in may be the route we want to look to, volunteers becoming bank staff, becoming core staff, becoming, you know, members, maybe a very... Uh, inclusive route for all sorts of people to come in who've not got degrees and who've not got um, uh, qualifications related to their belief group. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I think that's uh, that's the case for quite a number of chaplains that I'm aware of who've got um, in excellent quality volunteers, as I have myself, you know, encouraging them to take, um, take up ch training development um, and just kind of get the evidence together of their, mm. of their skills mm. so that they're equipped to apply for a post. You know, mm. it feels like a, a really good training ground to have those, that volunteer base. That's really good point. Mm. I, I agree with you. Uh, Chaplaincy needs to be seen and understood as a profession with skills and expertise uh, but I do have concerns I mean as we know I'm, I'm not a lone voice either the chaplaincy which really relies on empathy and compassion open communication but with our present registration system uh, it's weighted towards academic skills as opposed to I, I don't know uh, vocational and personal skills are we at risk of excluding talented chaplains because they don't also exhibit uh, more demonstrable, more measurable skills? It's a good point. I think it's a constant balance, really, isn't it? Because on the other hand, in, in other professions, you would expect people to mm. be um, up to date with current thinking, yep. um, with practice. You know, a nurse, for example, will expect, be expected to update their um their pin and to be up to date with 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 uh, you know what's required of them so I'd, i think there is that expectation and rightly so if we're going to be um you know an informed skilled group of people it's it's just the balance it's just the balance yeah. <laughs> and i think there'll be other routes like lindsay van dyke in sheffield um is working on an apprenticeship route you know and that i think is really exciting that we might get a wider range range of people coming, not just the belief range uh, and the gender range would all be really great if we could diversify on all those levels, wouldn't it? Indeed. And, and for you know, people in my position, for example, as a full-time post, to have a, like a, a trainee, <laughs> yes, yeah. some 
And that's that's a step on from having volunteers who you encourage and develop. And mm. um, but people are volunteers because they want to volunteer. Not you know for some people that's enough and that's sufficient. It's just where you see potential of people, um, yeah, being able to sort of continue the uh, the profession. Yeah. Mm. Mm. How how do you feel? What are the uh, areas that I feel sort of quite strongly about because of the nature of the volunteers I've worked with is that I had probably more volunteers who defined as agnostic not because of oh I don't know I don't care but because actually I've really thought about all of this and I, I have sufficient doubts that there isn't a God, <laughs> that I don't want to be a humanist. On the other hand, I have sufficient doubts that there is. I don't actually want to affiliate uh, to a particular religion or, or faith group. Um, and at the moment, there is still a requirement uh, to come from a, a belief or faith group. Um, I think in, in Scotland, you know, they're so further ahead than us in, in this yeah, spiritual yeah. care business. Uh, they now, uh, and I think the UK board have adopted this statement that says um, that we no longer have to be in good, stand, good standing in a faith or belief group was the old one. Oh, good. I think it's now take having, um, I think the phrase is having a mature worldview. Yes. Experience of, of faith groups, etc. But this is mature worldview phrase that's now come into parlance, really. Yeah. Um, I think, oh gosh, yes, this is a bit of a, a thing for me, really. Uh, not quite a hobby horse, but not far off. <laughs> and go for it, go for it. <laughs> and that's this business about um, that, that group of people you were talking about now, Stig, for. Uh, our volunteers but it's it's so true of our patient group people yes. who identify themselves yes. as non-religious mm. and i suspect in the census information that will come out this will be the group that has grown the biggest yes and by that my experience of all this time says that that doesn't mean people don't have some kind of spiritual belief it yeah. means that effectively but when you ask somebody, okay, you're non-religious, that's fine. You know, say a bit more. Well, I don't go to church. Mm. You know, uh, I don't go to a place and I don't align myself to a particular faith group. But when you, you push a little further, it doesn't mean that they've rejected a belief of some kind. So I think the, the group that we're seeing with patients this sort of group of people who say you know I'm not religious um really means if you push a little bit further that they don't go to a place of worship or belong to a particular faith group but have beliefs and a faith of sorts that is helpful to them so where this affects chaplaincy going forward I'm I'm sort of um I'm wondering really because if this is the biggest demographic um, that our organisational managers look at and say, well, if the, you know, the biggest group is non-religious, we need a non-religious chaplain. Yeah, and absolutely. I that's, that's the point we're at in Bradford because we've recognised the three main belief groups in Bradford are Christian, Muslim and non-religious. So as a consequence, you need to organise your service to take that into account. 
but that non-religious, as you say, is a hugely diverse group from the don't knows to the don't cares to the angry atheists to the fusers to the all sorts of people who've just dropped out of their faith for a while but intrinsically have something that is still retained and we need to fully recognize the diversity of that group and the richness of that but i i shy away i have a bugbear as well people say belief and no belief we all have beliefs Yes, you all know. faiths and none. For goodness sake, we yes. don't use that phrase anymore. Yeah. Please. But you still, you yeah. still hear it a lot it and it slips yeah. out of people's mouths even when they don't mean to. So, um, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. We all have beliefs and it's our job to find out what that person's core beliefs are to help them work those through or articulate them or feel resolved in them. That is our job. Yeah. Yes, and this is where I feel sometimes the terminology that's used by um, some organisations is a bit disingenuous because um, I have a, a humanist volunteer on my team um, and, uh, you know, she's excellent, but she has very firm sort of limitations around what she will do. And if somebody, if she's doing a world round and somebody asks for prayer, um, you know, she will refer on to another member of the team. Um, and and that's that's the bit where I wonder about really that mm. um, that we you know you know stick how chaplaincy has developed over this huge period of time you know the last twenty years the last fifteen ten years this idea of us working across the board not being all things to all people I couldn't you know I couldn't um, offer the rights to a Muslim patient or a Hindu patient or anything like that yeah. I'm not pretending that I that mm-hmm. the chaplain is is that but in terms of um this non-religious group of patients mm-hmm. it feels as if we are perhaps a, i don't know we're more able to be flexible with our support mm-hmm. if we come from now this would be a bit controversial i'm sure sort of a you know a, a faith and belief background because we hear what people aren't saying and we're not going to go in heavy handed and sort of say, well, you, know, you must you must do this or you must be prayed for or whatever. That's mm. that's silly. But um, I think we're more able to meet people's needs being informed by our, our faith background. I, I don't know. This is um, that's a really, really interesting point. You know, the, <laughs> the neutrality of coming in perhaps means that someone can be more open-minded or less judgmental or or all of those things I mean I favor talking about cross-belief working Mm. as opposed to multi-faith working and I think in multi you go and you only see or you have these limitations around what you can do and you know I don't do religious prayer with people but my my, I may say something like may you find comfort in your beliefs Yes, yes. May your day improve. You know, these sort yes. of those those are prayer like I call them Absolutely. prayer likes. Yes. You know, and we can all do prayer likes across beliefs. Yeah. 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 Talk about fit peace, finding peace, etc. Yeah. Whatever that means to people where they are. Yeah. Um, I uh, yeah, I, it's it's going to be an interesting next 10 years, I think, because yeah. uh, for for our profession. Mm. I think as well that uh, within the hospice kind of a setting where the need can be much more 
uh, immediate. Yes. That yes. actually I, I have found myself in those kind of positions of being asked to read the Quran for a Muslim patient, obviously in English, not the, you know, the Arabic, <laughs> but you know, oh, so, stick. I'm sure you could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and certainly I, I've known uh, one of the classic cases was we, we had a, a nun who, because she'd gone blind, was unable to do her daily office. So people were volunteering to read the daily office to her several, you know, several times during the course of the day. Uh, and it was about the compassion and the recognition of the need rather than saying, oh, but my belief precludes me from yeah, doing yeah. that. Actually, my belief is that I should first and foremost help this person. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, and also from the other end, um, where, you know, classically, we were waiting for a Roman Catholic priest to come for someone who was dying, and therefore I was inadequate as, a, as an Anglican. But actually, as the moment of death approached, the family turned around and said, you know what, Stig, you'll do. Yes. <laughs> Say yes. the prayers. Uh, and and you, you, you step up. And, and uh, I've had a similar experience with Hindu patients as well, where something needed to be said or done, and we enable that to happen. So obviously, I, I say obviously, but most of the time I would expect that it is much better to have your own faith representative. If you've got them as part of your team, so much the better, but actually you can also work with the local community and, and yeah, bring absolutely. people in, you know, so if, yeah. if you can build that sort of reservoir of connections, then, then, then that will work. But um, I think this, I think for me, there's something in that being professional that says this is not about what I think or what I believe. And if I can actually say or do something that will help someone. But there is that dilemma because in a way, perhaps, well, I suppose actually some doctors would have the same issue around abortion in, in, in theory. Um, but even within within a belief system, within a religion, you will still have people in conflict about what they can do and not do. Um, and some will do it and some won't. I was going to say the setting that you, you know, our setting is, is different to a general hospital. I think yes. it's important to recognise that, that in palliative care, a, a doctor of ours, I remember said a while ago, I have 25 drugs up my sleeve. Uh, you've got so much more uh, as a as a holistic team uh, to offer patients, and and that's the that's the setting I think of, of palliative care that suddenly people start to think about the big questions that they've not asked before, mm. uh, not had to face before. Um, suddenly, you know, mortality is very real, and um, so that makes our setting quite different, and it's 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 the kind of conversations that people will go to quite quickly that are of a spiritual nature. Mm. Even though people saying, you know, I'm not religious, don't da, 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 but I've got these big questions about who I am, what my life's been about. Mm. Yep. And, you know, um, separating from loved ones, what, 
what's going to happen afterwards. Um, we've got a patient in our unit at the moment who's, um, you know, quite definitely not a religious person. But the nearer he comes to his death, the kind of conversations I'm having with him are about, so what's ahead? And, you know, and they're always great conversations to have because who knows? But um, a lot of people suddenly become very scared about, do I just step into blackness? As somebody described it to me recently. Or do I yes. just open a door into a void and there's nobody there and I'm just on my own wandering about in this dark? Is that what it is? And, you know, I, I don't have a faith to help me think about this. Can you help me think about it? And it's, it's those conversations that are so different um, for palliative care chaplains that uh, you can't necessarily teach people to have, but your experience of the years gives you that um, kind of, okay, in this situation, let's, this is a good place to take the conversation. Um, that's what I'm really thinking about experience. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, and tying back to what we said before, I mean, the, the word of caution I have is about being cautious and being humble, because I think there's often, there can be an assumption that because we've had these conversations or because we have a faith or a belief ourselves, that we can go in and um, have that dialogue with person or that discourse. And I think we can quite often. But what I've learned a lot, particularly from my Muslim colleagues, is this idea of humbleness. Mm. And we start from a point of no assumption that we are the right person for that person. Yeah, and I think that, that for me is part of the richness in working in a, a mixed team, mm -hmm. is you, the conversations you have with us, okay, there might be a time when you have to step in and cover for a belief that isn't there, but we must always remain humble about that mm. and not assume um, that we can go in and yeah. cover everything. No, absolutely. Yeah. And we start where people are. I mean, that's the basic premise, isn't it? That yeah. Yeah. in going into a room, um, we don't take a clipboard, we don't take medication, we take nothing other than ourselves. And it's one human being to another. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's what it, you know, I, I, that's what I think our profession, our role, whatever, boils down to in the end. And it's, it's a huge... Um, responsibility but it's also a gift and this business of people being listened to and attended to has become much more part of I think our role as people aren't listened to and you know how many yep. patients say this is the first time somebody's mm. actually just sat and listened to me or mm. Or they feel overwhelmed by having that attention whether it's from a chaplain whether it's from a palliative care nurse, it's that, it's, it's what we do. We attend to the individual mm. and, um, you know, we must never lose that. Mm. But um, it's also from a patient's point of view, perhaps that, that's part of their feeling of over, being overwhelmed. But gosh, people are interested in me and what I think and how I reflect on this experience. Mm. And I'd say that's particularly important in acute care you know, where people are having the same crises of identity and meaning and purpose and reviewing their lives, but often in quite a sometimes quite traumatic or sudden situation. And I think there's additional challenge for us in finding that. One of my colleagues calls it a cloak of calm that you bring when you sit in a busy ward with lots going on and to, to come and give someone that time 
it, it's a different quality of time from in a hospice, I think. Yes. I think yes. hospices somehow, time has a different thickness in a hospice. <laughs> and and in, it, yeah. in acute care, yeah. you know, yeah. there's, there, everything's mm-hmm. leading to something else and there's shifts and there's lots going yeah. on and there's lots of they're being done to. And then you have this different time zone in a hospice which you can operate as a, as, as a chaplain. So I think there is a difference. There's a lot to learn from these different yeah. situations. Oh, yeah. Palliative care in, in, in hospital is 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 different. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I think where I, I was really trying to, to, to bring out is one of the things that the hospice setting can do, it can help us sort of really uh, winnow down just what are the things that are important because in this moment of extremis what really matters and that can actually help us as it you know feeding back into the uh, acute system but it certainly still happens uh, in uh, acute hospitals Uh, I've been called in um, after a, a there's been a, a woman's given birth and I arrived there I've been, and then I've been asked to church this this woman which isn't really archaic mm-hmm. uh, you know, gracious me yeah yeah but it, it's happened to me twice that uh, I, I've been asked if you like um, it, it's supposed to be traditionally a sort of cleansing kind of uh, right for women. And I, I just find that quite abhorrent, to be honest. Um, <laughs> there's just no way. So usually talking through it, asking what, what people want. But those are the kind of situations, I think, as chaplains, sometimes it does come back out to us. What am I prepared to do? Um, and... We did actually just have, in the end, for both those situations, a service of uh, thanksgiving for the safe delivery of the child and the, uh, you know, the, the life of the mother as well. You know, and, and, and there was only things to celebrate and, and rejoice in. Which, so I, I escaped, but I still came away with the reflection of. Um, if they had insisted, would I have done that traditional right? And I sometimes think it's because I'm just uh, such a woolly liberal. I might have just, I might have just said, yeah. Uh, Because, but that's that dilemma. Is this about me or is it about the patient? And if this is what the patient wants, even if I disagree with it, should I, should I do that? Um, so one of the things that I've loved through the years of uh, of my work is is being able to be creative with uh, working out ways of doing things for people that aren't in any liturgy book at all and uh, you know things like um, blessings for couples who are engaged to be married whose mother father won't be at the wedding and coming up with some kind of yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody call it a betrothal lit- liturgy well that sounded yeah. a bit formal but uh, yeah. and, you know all sorts of of things that you get asked to do and I'm intrigued about the fact that we're asked to do them yes that they turn to uh, the chaplain the spiritual care team to uh, facilitate things 
that, um, yeah, that even for people who are saying, I don't have a faith yeah. or belief, but I want you to be part of this and what that is about. And at the moment, uh, I'm... Yeah. Well, of course, yeah. that's yeah. been... Sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say, John, if you, if you let me say it, John, because I think it'll come better from me in a sense. But actually, one of the things I've really learned and valued over the years is that you don't have to be an Anglican priest or clergy <laughs> to be able to do that. You don't even have to be Christian. Actually, um, uh, as I've we've said on previous podcasts, some of the most poignant services that I've witnessed have been developed by humanist members of our team you know because it's as you say it's that creativity it's the linking and the resonance with the people you're with actually tuning into the dynamics of the family perhaps and what works because what works for one family won't work for another so yeah. you yeah. really got to tune in yeah. so yeah. pardon me joe but i thought yeah. that would be so I was me. just saying yeah no we we are asked as humanists to do these sort of rituals but we don't come from a we're not having to unlearn a religious tradition to do them so I mean it is quite we can be very creative I did a funeral I'm a funeral celebrant as well and I did a funeral on on Friday where the family were very involved in touching and and holding the coffin I got them to press the button to close the curtains you know which yeah. I could feel I could feel at the back of the room they were a bit worried that I'd let I'd involve the family in that but um, yeah, we. why do we have to do it a certain way? You know, yes. this is all part, as you said, Karen, of this changing population and people starting where people are rather than where the tradition has been. We can invent new traditions around names, Absolutely. around around divorce, around all sorts of life transitions, um, which may be linked to religion, may include religion. But we can work on this together and it's the fusion of these different things which is quite exciting mm. i think so and uh, and the fact that that in spite of um people's changing uh, belief sets there is um i feel almost now there's more of a a need for our role than uh, than in the past because more people yeah. latterly had had a, a, a vicar, a priest, a, you know, an imam that belonged to a group, whereas now people don't. But our, I find our accepting of the spiritual care approach because they're recognising that that is something that needs addressing, but, um, but, but have no one to, to turn to to offer it. So... Um, for example, I'm doing, I'm planning with a couple at the moment, a, a marriage. We're going to do a, a, a marriage for um, a, a patient's son and his girlfriend uh, very soon. They're not religious people, but we're working with the language of that. And because they have no one else to involve, have been offered the spiritual care team at the hospice. Um, and we can do that. You know, we can do it. And we can do it in a way that is congruent with their beliefs and also in, and, and also with with mine and we'll work a way of doing it um it's you know it's almost the fact that my particular beliefs inform how I work and but it doesn't inform but it doesn't dictate rather you know what we do with 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 our patients and that's that's the way forward I think it's quite exciting 
Well, that seems uh, on one level a really good place to, to finish. That was uh, a, a lot of energy and passion being uh, shared with the, between us all there. But before we close, because we are running out of time a little bit, um, Karen, is there anything else you, you would like to say, you know, looking to the future? Do you, do you have fears, hopes, concerns? What, what are going to be the important issues and changes ahead? Yeah, that's, um, it's, it's good just perhaps to be able to say a little about that. Um, this coming week, there's the European Network of Hospice Care, Healthcare Chaplaincy meeting in, in Crete. I'm taking part in the conversation there. And the, the title of the gathering is called On Being a Chaplain. And it's looking at the way forward. Um, and the paper I'm presenting is called um, Chaplaincy in Palliative Care proving our worth, standing our ground. And the essence of that really answers your question. It's about uh, challenging people to look at how we are in our organizations, who our organizations, uh, how, they, how they see us, how we embed, continue to embed the, the idea that spiritual care isn't a, 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 an add-on you know, an optional extra, it's integral to how um, we offer a holistic care. So it's, it's kind of how do our organizations see us? How do we think they see us? What is our place there? What's our value? Um, and then on top of that, I think it's really important that chaplains continue to gather evidence about our practice. And this is again, quite a new thing over the past few years. Chaplains uh, taking part in research, writing, presenting, just saying and collecting evidence in the moment. So not being afraid to write on um, in notes or on an electronic database, but documenting what we do. Um, it's so important so that at the end of a financial year, statistics can be drawn up if that's what matters, saying our chaplains saw so many hundred patients you know, or had so many hundred contacts, that's worthwhile. So it's this idea of embedding ourselves in an organization, collecting the evidence that says spiritual care matters. Um, and we need a, a trained, skilled, um, experienced person to take it forward into the future. Well, That's I hope great, you get... Karen. Yeah, <laughs> look at us talking at once. But I've really enjoyed that conversation. We've yeah, covered likewise. a lot of ground, haven't we? Thank great. you ever so much, Karen. You've got our first interview uh, okay. for our <laughs> podcast series uh, well and truly off the ground that, 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 that was great so I suppose just to remind uh, anyone <laughs> everyone who is listening that uh, you can get in touch and would be happy to relay any further questions on to Karen I'm sure she'd like to hear from people uh, with any questions or, or in, in interest in what's been said uh, so our email is openupchap at gmail.com and uh, we'd really love to hear from you so thank you ever so much Karen and thank you Joe as well for, <laughs> <laughs> for, for being a partner in this venture <laughs> well where would I be without you 